This is episode 259 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Censorship and Obscenities with Michael Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. Thank you for joining us and tune in on Mondays for new episodes. I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show, Michael Adams. So thank you for joining us, Michael. Well, I'm delighted to be here, ready to talk about any word things you want to talk about. Yeah, that's so great. We have uh, those interests in common. And so we're going to catch up a little bit on an episode that we did back in April of 2022 when we talked about the Madeline Kripke collection that the Lilly Library at Indiana University acquired. And then we're going to talk about some work that Michael's been doing and obscenities and all kinds of racy stuff. <laughs> so I'll start by introducing Michael. He's the chair of the English department at Indiana University and provost professor of English. He has a PhD in English from the University of Michigan and has taught at IU since 2006. He's a lexicographer and historian of the English language and English words. He has a strong interest in slang and jargon, including the language of television programs and invented languages. He's the author of numerous publications, including Slayer Slang. I just love that title. A Buffy the Vampire Slayer Lexicon, Slang, the People's Poetry. Just such a great title. And from Elvish to Klingon, the first academic survey of invented languages and in praise of profanity. Yay! He's an expert on dictionaries and was on the show in April of 2022 to talk about dictionaries, which we spent quite a lot of time talking about, as well as the acquisition of this collection of dictionaries from Madeline Kripke. That was after uh, she had passed away. That was a great episode, if I say so myself. And I'll include a link to that episode also in the show notes. All right. So, Michael, first, can you bring us up to speed on where you are in exploring the Kripke collection? Well, different people are exploring it. And I'm happy to report, I just found out today that some of the items are cataloged already. Uh, which is faster than I expected. Any of them would be sort of publicly noticeable. But for the last uh, pretty close to a year, um, the library has been just doing an inventory of what was in all of the crates that we got from Madeline's apartment and, and, and storage units in New York. And I haven't kept up with this exactly. Uh, it, it is available to me and to librarians um, through an online uh, app, but it's just kind of a listing of the works and then the location um, which crate they're in uh, is indicated so and that but that's important because that that means that if somebody from some other part of the world writes and says you know did madeline kripke have a copy of this book right they can look alphabetically in this list find the book find out which box or crate it's in go off and retrieve that item and make it available to someone who's visiting the library to look at it. So I think that's a huge advance. And it's been wonderful that the library has been able to find 
you know, students, both graduate students and undergraduates who were willing to spend their summer making a little bit of money, working through those boxes and making up that inventory. The last time I looked, um, they were better than halfway through um, the 20,000 some items that are in the collection. So yay, yeah, right. <laughs> halfway through, but it's taken a long time to get that far. Personally, I still go to the Wells Library uh, where the stuff is stored right now. It's not in the physical Lilly Library. Some of it probably will be shelved there. Some of it will be shelved elsewhere in the system, but retrievable uh, to the Lilly Library. But, but I still go to the Wells Library where it's stored and poke around in boxes and find interesting things to write about. Um, and as you know, um, I started a blog called Unpacking the Kripke Collection, uh, which is an account of some of the books I've come across. And, and the way I do it is not to cherry pick books, um, you know, not to go for the most expensive or the most celebrated or the foundational item in the history of dictionaries or whatever. Um, I just open up a box and look in it. If a box says that all the boxes say on the outside, how many items are in the box? And if a box says it's got two or three or five items, I just skip it mm. because that means it's got big dictionaries in it. And they'll probably be 19th century Webster's dictionaries or, you know, something like that. Not unimportant at all. Or they might have some of the more expensive uh, uh, treasures of the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, you know, carefully uh, wrapped up uh, in, in a box big enough to contain them. Wow. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm reaching into boxes with 20 to 40 items in them. For smaller things that say more about uh, cultures at large, I guess you could say, than about the dictionary itself. And uh, uh, anybody who visits the blog will see that I'm just as interested in how people are responding to the items uh, uh, that I'm picking out, you know, in the end papers or by annotating them or, you know, whatever, um, to show people interacting with the dictionaries that they own, you know, which is different from just saying we have these dictionaries. Each of the dictionaries uh, or, or works um, that I've included in the blog has a dictionary story to tell, but it has other stories to tell, too. Uh, if you look at the books carefully. Uh, and that's one of the things I'm trying to get across to any audience out there who wants to know uh, more about those types of books and about um, the cultures they come from. Some of the items that I've looked at, and I do it off and on, I don't, I don't focus only on popular culture things, but you brought up Slayer slang, and I can't help but admit, uh, I did write that book. And, <laughs> um, you know, it is true that I'm interested in the way that media influences at least our attitudes towards language. And uh, there have been a couple of items uh, on, on the blog that have been really revealing, I think, about popular culture at the time uh, they were published. One of them is the Dobie Gillis uh, Dictionary. Uh, and for people who are my age or older, Dobie Gillis was a, was a television character okay. uh, who had wonderful lives. Uh, and he had a, he had a friend um, who's who's a who's a beatnik. You know, he represents oh. the hip culture of the time. He was played by Bob Denver, who also oh. played Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. Yeah, uh, so I know this that was name. an earlier this was an earlier role that he played on television. It's fascinating stuff. That's funny. Yeah, uh, but it's just this little it's just this little square booklet maybe with 16 pages i bet it's no more than two and a half inches i don't remember the dimensions off the top of my head in either direction but it's but it's a little dictionary of slang from the time and i say that pretty pretty uh, uh convinced that it's authentic 
maybe half of the items that I looked up from that little dictionary, I found in big dictionaries of slang, mm -hmm. like Green's Dictionary of Slang. And then others I didn't find, but then I asked myself, I checked the bibliography of Jonathan Green's masterful Green's Dictionary of Slang, and he doesn't have Adobe Gillis uh, slang dictionary in there, which means maybe he didn't have access to all the evidence of the slang that was spoken in America at that time, sure. you know, and, and, and so if half of the book is legitimate, maybe the other half of the book is legitimate too, right? And sure. it's just stuff that has uh, managed to fall in, in, in between the dictionary cracks, so to speak. So it's got, it's got its dictionary story, which is about the language um, that's in it, but then it's also got this other story. And I don't really know this story, but I, I'm going to figure it out one of these days. I mean, was this a cereal box booklet? Oh. Did it get attached to a teen magazine as an insert that you could pull out that was a bonus? Sure. That happened with some language works and dictionaries that are in um, the Lily's collection. So, I mean, it could be any one of these. I don't know. I don't even at this point know how to find out. Yeah. But the point is that it's not just about the words that are in the dictionary. It's about the marketing opportunity mm -hmm. that the people involved that felt, you know, they'd lean it on the television show. And then, you know, it would be cross marketing in a way that people were just beginning to realize was valuable as the teen market began to grow, right? right. And then there's, you know, where it appeared, if we could figure that out, what was the actual audience, you know, when I was really young, I hate to admit it, um, because it'll, it'll definitely date me. But the Archies, uh, uh, mm -hmm. the musical group, mm -hmm to whatever extent you can call them a musical group. I think right. that they're a fake musical group. I'm not sure exactly who sang in it and played the instruments or anything like that. But when, when we got cereal boxes, some of them had singles that you could play on your record player. Like a little record in that? on the back of the box right oh, because yes. because they could put that they could put the grooves the plastic grooves on top of the cardboard you just kind of pulled this thing or cut it out or i don't remember exactly how we did it and then you could take it over to your little your little record player and you put it on 45 you know 45 rpm and then and then it would play sugar sugar or some mm -hmm. stupid song like that uh -huh. right so i mean that stuff was going on and so maybe that's the origin of this instance of cross-marketing, you know? So there are all kinds of things to figure out. Um, dictionaries open a window up to lots of other things about the cultures in which they're made. So so that's all very exciting. And that I'm still continuing to do. I was told that the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd posts of the blog are scheduled to be posted this month still. Oh, okay. So I had wanted to do a post every week. And bless their hearts, they've been so accommodating to me and so helpful. I think that might have been more than the library staff could really handle, you know? I mean, they've got other things they've got to do, and the Kripke collection isn't their only collection. And in order to have the beautiful photographs they've taken, somebody yeah. really had to find the time, you know, to take those pictures and then get it into the post and then get the post up on the site. So, so what we've got instead of once a week is once every other week on average. For oh, the year, gosh, which I think is pretty good. Yeah, still a lot. Well, but you know, the thing about it is, Jennifer, there are 20,000 items in that collection. So, so, so now, you now, better live a really long now, time. All right. Now we're done. Now we're down to 19,973 <laughs> items that are unexplored. That's a little better than that because sometimes I talk about more than one item in, in, a, in a post. Mm. But, but you know, there's so much more. Um, that's completely unexplored and what a wonderful adventure is going to be uh, to continue looking at that material. Yeah. 
I'll include a link to the to the blog as well in the show notes. That would and, be great. And really recommend uh, that my listeners check it out. The articles are, of course, extremely well written um, and also, you know, really nicely documented, but always fascinating, right? Yeah. There's always some kind of, oh, really? Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. If I had the time, I could just open up one of those boxes of 30 books and write about all 30 books in there. I mean, they're all worth talking about in some way. And I just pick out the ones that uh, fascinate me the most at that minute. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the things that was interesting about Madeline was that she was uh, interested in language, of course, obviously, but also something that's kind of fascinating about her collection is that she was interested very much in slang, but also obscenities. Oh. Uh, so, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about what her view of that kind of language was. Her view was very open-minded. And in fact, one of the things that we have that isn't really language-oriented at all are her Tijuana Bibles. And people who don't know about the Tijuana Bibles, these were graphic novels, basically, uh, from the 1920s and 30s. I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, something like that. You know, back when the Comstock Act was very much in force, you know, and you mm -hmm. couldn't, you couldn't publish material or especially send it through the mail uh, without uh, committing a, a, a felony. I mean, that oh, was gee. a very dangerous thing. Yeah, and that's in America. There was a parallel law in, in the United Kingdom. But in America, that's the law that kept Americans from reading James Joyce's Ulysses and 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 D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover. Um, in my personal opinion, a book we don't need to read. It's not, you know, that interesting, I think. But it became a cause celebre because... You know, you couldn't smuggle it in without getting in trouble. And so there were court cases in the 50s and 60s where finally the right of Americans to own those books was guaranteed by the Supreme Court. But at that time, you couldn't you couldn't make all these racy sex, sexual jokes and you couldn't draw cartoons that showed obscene things. And there, my understanding is that there's a lot of um, dispute about whether the, the Tijuana Bibles were actually produced in the U.S. or in Mexico. Oh. But, but the story was that they were published in Mexico you know, printed and produced there and then smuggled into the United States. So fairly rare things. And if you were the type of person who, you know, many years later with, when photography was available in glossy magazines, you were a, a playboy or a penthouse reader. Well, mm -hmm. back in the 1920s or 30s, you might have these under your bed uh, mm -hmm. instead of your instead of your playboy magazines. And this would be your titillating uh, uh, literature. And she she was a committed collector of these. They're beautiful copies. Um, and quite rare. So she was a collector and a dealer in rare uh, books. So that was one part of her and just the rarity of them, I'm sure, appealed to her. But as you say, she loved slang and profanity and other things that many of her dictionaries capture. Uh, that raciness uh, in language was something that she, you know, I won't say promoted exactly, but certainly approved. Mm -hmm. and, 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 Appreciated, and she, I guess. Well, yeah, that she wanted represented in her collection. I mean, if you think of her collection as her, you know, magnum opus, I mean, the thing that she spent nice. decades putting together. And, and if you look at it that way, you can see the way, you know, she valued all kinds of things about language and the way we codify that language in books and other artifacts. But there is a strong 
I guess you could say there's a there, there's a, a long and winding river of obscenity uh, represented in her collection. So it wasn't there accidentally. It was something she was looking to collect, and it's part of her imagination as a collector that these things should be among those those other books. So so, and I'm putting it that way because. I'm sure she appreciated it and liked racy things. You know, I mean, there's, sure. there's no harm in that. But in addition to that, it was also part of the design of what what she was making in this collection that it would represent that that subject. And so, for instance, one of the items that is mentioned in the blog is this really weird thing that she did. She had a a little notice from uh, a New York uh, uh, newspaper, magazine, weekly, or whatever, called the Intelligencer, and and it was a story about newspapers spiking their reviews of the first edition of Jesse Scheidlauer's The F Word, uh, which uh, came out, what, in 1995, I think. And uh, um, Jesse and, and Madeline were friends. They, they knew each oh. other. And so she was interested in it for that reason. Mm -hmm. But she cut this thing out of the newspaper, then it had a laminated <laughs> basically there was a sort of a she didn't really have a laminated but there was a, a hard plastic sleeve that she had slipped the uh the article into and then preserved it uh and i was just fishing through a box and this thing was stuck in between two books and i looked at it i know jesse scheidlauer mm. the f word is in its third edition and i know that it's going into a fourth edition that should be published very soon so there's more to say about the f word than jesse scheidlauer <laughs> managed to say in the first three editions of the book lots of new stuff um he's told me so i mean it's an ongoing thing but she she picked up on this as an example of a strange type of censorship I mean, the government can come in and say, well, it can't in America. That's an that's an important constitutional issue, right? But but you know, hypothetically the government could say, no, none of that. You know, we're not gonna have that type of language in books. Um, or um, you know, you could you could self-censor and say, well, I'm just not gonna write about books like that. Um, but what appears to have happened in this case is that people actually wrote the reviews. And then the editors at these newspapers were spiking the reviews after they'd been written. So the editor was exercising the censorship. And obviously it wasn't censorship of the F word. It was censorship of the very idea of a book about the F word, which yeah. seems like a stretch to me, right? Why not present people the opportunity if they want to pursue it? You don't have to use any of the words that are in the dictionary in the review if you don't want to. Right. As a matter of fact, the great American linguist Alan Walker-Reed, who published the first article about the F word, really, in a scholarly journal, uh, he, this was during the Comstock era. It's titled An Obscenity Symbol, and the word, the F word, is never used in the article, which was oh, published yeah. in 1934, uh, because the journal American Speech would have been in a lot of trouble if it had published that word, even as an object of scholarly interest right. in a scholarly journal. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that that could happen, right? Yeah. So you see some of that tendency towards, I don't know, protecting the public from itself or something in, in the attitudes of these editors. Uh, and it's you know, I, I'm not going to say yay or nay or, you know, they've got a proprietary interest maybe in the newspaper. They want to project its image out into the public as a certain thing. Um, you know, we all brand the things that we publish. So mm -hmm. maybe that's what an editor of a newspaper feels is necessary to fulfill the promise of its brand. And so those reviews had to be spiked. Luckily, not all reviews were spiked. It was a well-reviewed book and, you know, people knew about it. It's been very successful and popular. But it's just an interesting maneuver. And she felt it was important 
to collect that, mm-hmm. partly because it was about a friend yeah. and partly because it was about the censorship. Uh, and if you're going to be interested in profanity, you're ultimately going to be interested somehow in censorship because of you know the way we censor our language uh, all the time with euphemisms instead of the profanity we really mean. I've I've written and believe firmly that that doesn't really work. That, that you know <laughs> when, when you do that, what you what you do in a linguistic sense is you prime the word you're trying not to use in the listener's mind, right? Mm-hmm. So so you say if you're Irish and you say feck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and grandmothers say that word, right? And it's a euphemism for the actual word. And yet, you know, the moment anybody says it, they know exactly what word it's covering up, right? And so I, I, I kind of think that the euphemism forces listeners to swear. They, they swear in their mind. If you're trying to protect them, then then don't talk about it at all, right? Because as soon as they figure out what you're talking about, then that word, whatever it is, is going to rise to the top of their of, of their memory. Well, maybe that's what those editors were thinking, right? They don't even yeah. want to, I mean, there's something sort of meta about that. Like, I yeah. don't even want a review of a book that's using a euphemism about an obscenity. I mean, right, we're right. getting pretty far away from the actual problem here. We, well, we are at that point, <laughs> but also people do use all of the words that are in the dictionary because it's a historical dictionary and its structure like the Oxford English Dictionary. So there are quotations that represent Mm-hmm. Printed use of all of the words that are in there, and and uh, Jesse's a good lexicographer. He doesn't have an entry for something that's just used once, uh-huh. you know, as far as he can tell. That might just be an off the cuff invention that nobody else picked up on. I mean, there's a rich archive of the use of that word mm-hmm. <laughs> and its development across a really wide variety of of forms, metaphorical and and otherwise. And, oh, yes, uh, it's a tremendously plastic word. Right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> we that's use right. it as adjective, noun, verb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and something and something that in English is really uncommon. We some languages, just as they use prefixes and suffixes for grammatical purposes, um, use infixes. They put a particle mm-hmm. into the middle of the word. Right. English is not an, an infixing language by and large, um, but we do infix for a type of um, emotive amplification, mm-hmm. uh, a heightened expressivity. Mm-hmm. We do that type of infixing with the F word. Yeah, uh, I think it's and, really it's so yeah, interesting, no, no. right? So, so it has its own little <laughs> special place, right? Yeah, that it gets, right. This, gets this word form treatment that is really unnatural uh, in English. But seems to come naturally to people, right? Oh, yeah. Like they, yeah. yeah, they they easily do that. Yeah, no, they they do, and you know that that that's almost a uh, you know not that we need to affirm Noam Chomsky or any other sort of uh, uh, brain theorist of language, but the notion that all human beings have the same language capacity, you know, uh, sometimes it's called the language instinct. Chomsky calls it linguistic competence. Um, you know, we've all got it. And so the structures are somehow there mm-hmm. cognitively. And if, if circumstances in the world um, uh, bring a possibility out into a language, then it finds a structural place that, you know, it hadn't had before. And I think that's what happened with with infixing in English, which before, say, the 20th century is pretty much a it's not a thing. I mean, it's mm. not anything that English speakers did. And then towards the end of the 19th century at the earliest, and then in, into the 20th century, you start to see people 
people playing on that. So, but you know, another thing that we, we don't do very much in English, we do more than we think probably is reduplication, which is a big feature of some languages, South Asian languages, for instance. Um, you know, and the obvious ones that we do are things like mama and papa and dada right. and things like that, where the syllable is just repeated. But now for slang purposes, we're reduplicating too. So one of the great slang words of the last year or so is a reformation of delusional, which is delulu. Oh, which I think is a fantastic slang word, right? <laughs> That's very sweet. Well, no, be, right, be, but it's adventurous in the sense that it does something challenging because it's doing the reduplication. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also kind of imitative, isn't it? Because delulu is a kind of delusion. You know, if you're yeah. delulu, the, the word is kind of performing what it's about. And I just, I just think it's a wonderful. So we do sometimes recognize um, these unfamiliar structures as ways of being profane or being slangy they don't enter into the mainstream of the vocabulary very much but that's okay because we need our slang and we need our profanity too and it just it just enables us some yeah i want to go back to something that you said which i think is really interesting it's this idea of if you're going to study profanity you're inevitably going to run into issues of censorship yeah. do you feel as though that's almost part of the character of profanity yeah, it's the character of language, actually. Mm. There's a great book by the British linguist Deborah Cameron uh -huh. called Linguistic Hygiene or Language Hygiene. No, it's called Verbal Hygiene. There we go. <laughs> I apologize to anyone who's listening, especially Deborah Cameron. It's a, it's a great book for lots of reasons, but it starts from the premise that attention to language is part of having language that you can't have a language a shared language anyway in, in, that people don't judge that they don't comment on that so maybe they're seeking for perfection maybe they're seeking for some correctness if they can figure out a way to enforce that on other people uh, maybe they're looking for a loose standard that we can all follow something um you know and some some people addicted to verbal hygiene will write letters to the editor of the newspaper and complain about their neighbor's speech and all of that right um and uh, some mm -hmm. people will use other other mechanisms say public education uh to enforce norms right um mm -hmm. because that's what language kind of impels us to do we can't help it so mm -hmm. you can you can take that general idea and apply it i think to the situation of profanity because if we're going to exercise some hygiene about our language altogether, then cer certainly the metaphor that this is mm. dirty language really makes it mm -hmm. subject to hygienic intervention, right? I mean, we have to fix this somehow right. or we have to stop it or we have to whatever it is. So I think it's, yes, if you're going to have profanity, you're going to have people resisting it. And some of that resistance is going to be in the form of censorship and it could be state censorship or it could be self-censorship or it could be any number of things because people know that that's supposedly bad language they know that they also know that they can't do without it right and they need it in certain circumstances so they're not going to get rid of the profanity they're just going to scold everybody who uses it and, try, and, and then try not to use it themselves if, if, they're, if they're the scolds. I mean, obviously, things have changed over the last uh, 70 years, post-World War II, and profanity uh, has been uh, less taboo um, than it used to be yeah. um, and has found its place 
as expressive language in a lot of art. Um, it first appears, by the way, in English, in poetry, in Scott's poetry. It's not like this was always language of the street or, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, it was actually, you know, a, a word that people felt they, they knew they were being dirty in the poem. They, they knew that. But that was okay. And uh, the hammer had not come down on profanity yet uh, in the late 15th and early 16th century. That, that kind of, oh, that kind of takes uh, uh, the modern world. Uh, and all of its trappings, I think, to to bring, you know, in full force against profanity. Hmm. I'm working on a project right now, which is somewhat related to Madeline, but we can get off of Madeline some, but I've mentioned him earlier. Alan Walker Reed, who wrote that article, An Obscenity Symbol, is also famous for another work. It's a book. Um, it's about 90 pages long. Uh, it has the impressive title, uh, Lexical Evidence from folk epigraphy in the Western United States and Canada. And you think, well, what's this about? Well, what it's about mm -hmm. is what folklorists call latrinalia. It's about the writing on outhouse walls. Oh, wow. Latrinalia. Yeah, latrinalia. <laughs> Isn't that a great, great word? Great word. I know. Yes. <laughs> so so Al, Alan Walker Reed and his family went off hiking in the national forests and, and parks um, of the Western United States and Alan had to use the latrine all the time. And like any language interested person, I don't know what he used to write it down yet, uh, but he would he would he would take, you know, the evidence. He would go and he would write down what he was reading on the walls of the latrines. Mm -hmm. And from those uh, statements, he was able to construct a dictionary uh, with illustrative oh, wow. quotations from the latrine walls about all the words you're not supposed to say. But it was a downright obscene work, right? Um, and even he was so worried about the effect that it would have that there's a sort of caveat on the title page about how it should be used by serious scholars for serious purposes and isn't, you know, to be taken lightly, um, but that, you know, there are certain fields, anthropology, folklore, psychology, uh, linguistics that shouldn't overlook the language. And so it has to be recorded somewhere, right? Um, mm -hmm. so that people can look at it. Well, Alan's uh, materials are all at the State Historical Society of Missouri. And I'm now, tentatively, probably in the long run, in pursuit of a biography of him. I see. I'm I'm visiting that archive and trying to learn as much as I can about every aspect of his life, right? One of the things that's fascinated me is that because of the Comstock Act, he couldn't just take this material and publish it in an American journal. Uh, or or publish it in America as a book. So he did what lots of authors at the time did when they wrote racy things. He found someone in Paris yeah. willing to print it. And uh, he did this through the agency of another great slang writer, slang lexicographer, Eric Partridge, who knew mm -hmm. uh, a fellow named Jack Kahane, who was the owner of the Obelisk Press in Paris, and uh, introduced Reed to him and uh, Reed contracted with the obelisk press to publish 75 copies of that book oh gee not very not many. very many at all and they were numbered yeah. and i can tell you now now well not right now because i don't have it in front of me but i could tell you if i had another computer in front of me it could, could 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 bring up the page um who about 45 of those 75 people were and which numbered copy they received because I've been oh. in his correspondence, you know, trying to figure out who got these copies. There were so few of them. Who did he think should have them? 
Yeah, so he hand-selected the recipient. He did. He did, and it's not all an interest of profanity. I think it was partly an interest of his career because he'd done this amazing sure. thing in a way, and he didn't want it to be overlooked. Yeah. So he was in this really weird situation of having published a book that nobody could get a hold of or read. And I know this uh, was an issue because I read several letters when I was in that archive from people asking how they could get a hold of a copy of the book. And sometimes they were major libraries. And he would write back and he would say, there are no copies available, right? So so that's the end of that. Not yeah, for you. Yeah, not for you, that's <laughs> right. But for these 75 people, there were going to be copies. And he, and he picked out uh, major scholars in America, Britain, uh, interested in sexology and linguistics and folklore and all kinds of other things. And and huh. many of them, I'm saying many, I'm thinking maybe of a half a dozen, but in a way that's many. Um, out of those uh, 40 or so that, that I know received copies, they wrote back to him in exactly the terms I think he wanted to read. They said, what you've done is important and brave. And they would use yeah, the brave, brave word, right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that that's true. That says something about the risk that, that Reed was taking at the time. So I'm working on a book right now that'll explain in a chapter how he collected the material when he was off walking in the woods, right? And then a chapter about the publication of the book, how that came about. Um, and it is directly related to censorship because that was what drove him to do it the way he did. Sure. And then a chapter about who got this little book once he had smuggled it back uh, into America. Now, Alan Walker Reed, bless his heart, was a pretty proper guy. I mean, he was a he was a he was a fairly mild mannered person, and uh, he wasn't interested in breaking the law. He was not a scoff law, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the funniest things about his his record of, of publishing this book is that he picked up the remaining copies in Paris, uh, returning on a, on a ship. And uh, when he got to America, apparently the customs person said, "What's that?" And he said, "It's a book. These are this, these are copies of a book about linguistics, or a book about language." Okay. And the customs official didn't ask any more questions and let him go through with the copies. Good. He wrote to Jack Kahane, the guy who published it, uh, that he was so pleased that that had happened because in the end, he hadn't smuggled the books into the United States because the customs official had let him go. But please, of course, he'd smuggled it into the United States. And, and with those in his <laughs> possession, you know, and anybody could have turned him in or made a, a, a big deal of it and gotten him into trouble. So, so there was a certain level of bravery involved. Yeah. That book was so well known by reputation that mm. when Reinhold Amann started publishing his journal Maledicta in the 1970s and 80s, he, he had this little book publication program, Maledicta Books, and he arranged with Alan Walker-Reed to reprint that as a paperback called Classic American oh. Graffiti. And that uh. brought it to a lot of people. I mean, then a lot of people could afford the book. Yeah. The joke about that is that the book I'm preparing, I hope will include the original text of Alan Walker Reed's book because oh. online oh. you'll find copies of classic American graffiti, the paperback selling for $400, $500, $600. So it's not a rare book, but it's an increasingly wow. scarce book. And that means it's really out of, you know, it's beyond what most people can just have in their libraries, right? So if I can get that in with this yeah. account um, of the book, it's history mm -hmm. from 
you know, a little glimmer in Alan Walker Reed's mind walking around in Washington State or wherever, or Montana, uh, right to the point where it was republished in, in an accessible form. That's the book that I'm working on. But it's all about censorship. And it's all about people's attitudes yeah. toward bad words. Reinhold Amann, whom I just mentioned, was uh, an angry academic. He was a scholar of German. Uh, he worked on German swear words. Now, he also wrote uh, a book about or did an edition of a romance, a German romance of the Middle Ages. So it wasn't as though he could only think about profanity, but he he, he really did uh, a lot of work in it. And he just got so disenchanted with the universities um, that he set himself up as an independent mm. publisher. And it was, from what I understand, very hard. I mean, there were a lot of missed meals in the Amon house because he wasn't making a whole lot of money uh, out of it. But he published... Oh, I think it was 13 years he published this journal, Maledicta, which was all about all the words that when mm -hmm. the Comstock Act was in force, you wouldn't have been able to publish in a journal like that. But boy, when you could publish it, it just came pouring out. And I think one of my favorite things about looking at the tables of contents of those issues is how many really serious, prominent linguists of the time wrote their bad words piece, right? Or they that they they had something that they wanted to contribute to oh. that journal, uh, even though they were famous oh. for other things. And you might think decorum would keep mm -hmm. them from selling their reputations mm -hmm. with uh, an article about profanity or racial slurs or something like that in this journal, but they did contribute it. So, um, so there was a movement, there was a movement for a while. Yeah, it almost speaks to the power of those words, right? If you're a person who's interested in words and you know there's this class of words that just right. triggers, uh, you know, triggers people. It's a very annoying if you're a scholar or if you're a, an etymologist or a lexicographer or a historian of the language because these words, because they were taboo, were unexplained. And your job was to explain yeah. what hadn't been explained. And yet the right. law said you were not allowed to explain those things to the public, even if you kept notes about them privately for yourself, hoping that the law would change someday, right? So I think one way of looking at this, and it interested Madeline especially, and I'd said before that Jesse Scheidlauer, the subject of, you know, the author of the F word and the subject of that newspaper article, he's a friend, uh, was a friend of Madeline's. Alan Walker Reed was a very close friend of hers. They were both New Yorkers. They were constantly uh -huh. uh, meeting and talking about, you know, all of these books and everything. She apparently had at least four copies of his book, which meant she was on the hunt, like me, except that she was trying to collect as many mm. of them as possible. And I just want to know who, who ended up with them. I don't care who owns them now, what library or person. What Alan was doing uh, in the article and obscenity symbol and in this book, Lexical Evidence, what he was doing was pushing back against the proscription, saying, we are going to talk about yeah. these things and seriously, and I'm going to take the lead in doing mm -hmm. it. And I don't know that I can make a grand argument about it, but uh, definitely that pressure helped change things. I mean, you know, when people saw, mm -hmm. people at universities saw you know, this was serious stuff and that you could treat it just like uh, you mm -hmm. would treat anything in any other dictionary. And it was just as scholarly and it was just as important. I mean, they then ended up on the side of we need to change this law or we need to look into this more or we need to mm -hmm. open up space for mm -hmm. it. Right. And I think he was part of the movement that loosened um, uh, the, the taboo uh, on profane and obscene words. 
you as an Indiana University person probably know that uh, the state legislature here has refused to continue funding in any way the Kinsey collection uh, what do you want to call it sexology basically of all kinds of things that have to do with sexual behavior yeah. and and that's because people want to censor that too right and they they they, they want to shut it down yeah. because they don't think that people should be learning about those things and if you look at Kinsey's timeline uh Alfred Kinsey's timeline and Alan Walker Reed's timeline uh Alan lasted longer he had a longer life uh but they were both pushing back in the 1940s 30s and 40s against the idea that we shouldn't study these things and learn what we can learn about them. That, you know, human knowledge is obviously uh, enhanced by knowing about these things we're unwilling to talk about. So that part of Madeline's project, that was part of Alan Walker Reed's project, that's part of the story of profanity and obscenity in the United States during the 20th century. Uh, and I'm afraid uh, maybe in the 21st century, you know, if something like this action against the Kinsey Institute can can take hold. I mean, you know, maybe they'll be coming for the dictionaries of bad words next. And you can be sure that they're not on a lot of uh, high school, uh, public school library shelves now, right? Because of uh, the move to take uh, offensive books or what are deemed offensive books um, out, of the, out of the way of students. Um, and you know you have to laugh at that, Jennifer, because one of the most famous of the of the profanity dictionaries, if you want to call it that, or obscenity dictionaries, was Eric Partridge's Shakespeare's Body, right? Which is all about all the bad words in Shakespeare. So basically, you're going to have a whole bunch of high schoolers reading Shakespeare and not understanding what the words mean and not being able to find out uh, if these people have their own way, and then they'll get rid of Shakespeare, right? Uh, because 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 of all the bad words in it, right? Or it'll have to be vulgarized, as we say. Uh, after Thomas Bodler, the 19th century editor of Shakespeare, who took out all the bad words, right, and, and rewrote it so the bad words weren't there anymore. So not Shakespeare. So, yeah, so we're kind of at a, I don't want to overstate things. I don't know that it's a crossroads or a threshold or, but something's going on in the minds of Americans today that's yeah. the, in the censorship direction. Uh, and I'm not a fan of it. And yes. the people on whom I'm working as a scholar uh, were not fans of, of censorship either. They were they were clearly against it. Yeah, two things uh, come to mind. One is this idea that courage is contagious. Mm -hmm. That when you see people do what really was a brave thing, that it encourages you to also go with your own instincts. Because yeah. we do self-censor, right? If we think what we're doing might be a little bit improper sure. or inappropriate, then it's like, well, maybe I won't. And then when you see somebody else say, no, yeah. this is important, right? We need to speak up about this, then yeah, you feel yeah. more brave to do it. And then the second one is the old speech about it's a slippery slope, right? So first, first they come for this, right. and then they come right. for that. And then now we're going to sure. come for Shakespeare. Give me a break. I mean, <laughs> if all the, if there's anything in scholarly work that should be protected, it seems to be it should include Shakespeare. Well, and I think that, genius, that most people so. agree with that without having even read any Shakespeare, right? I mean, I mean, there are plenty of people who just know right. that he was an important author, and and uh, you know that people ought to be introduced to his work and. If you're going to learn about it, then you're going to have to be able to decipher it in some way because early modern English vocabulary isn't the same as our current vocabulary. And, and that's one of the reasons it's enriching to read, right? I mean, that, that that's one of the things that always gets me about all of this. I mean, the mind is so 
well, you used the word earlier, plastic, uh, about something else, but it's so flexible and uh, it gains its strength from exercise, you know, dealing with unfamiliar things. And, and when language is unfamiliar and you think about it or images are unfamiliar or your experience physically in the world is unfamiliar, the brain works hard to, to figure out the differences and what their value to you might be. And, you know, it's really just the brain figuring out again how language can work, right? Uh, and uh, why would we deprive ourselves of that? Uh, well, we do it because there's another system of thinking. You know, it could be religious or it could be moral in some other way that feels that these are all inappropriate things to talk about. But I just don't believe that anything is inappropriate really to talk about. I mean, yeah, or at least to study. I mean, that's the thing that's a little disturbing to me is when we have laws that come down that say, Right. Similar to guns, right? You're not, you, there is a specific law prohibiting you from yeah. studying something. That's such an anti investigation, anti knowledge, anti research. Yeah. yeah, coming from a position like that is just very confusing to me. It's unconstitutional as far as I understand. And I'm very interested as an observer to see as some things like book bans or, um, actions against the Kinsey Institute or whatever rises to the Supreme Court's level, what the Supreme Court will have to say about this, because there's a very long uh, tradition, at least since the 1950s, of uh, not allowing the government to tell you what to say or what not to say. Um, that's in the Constitution mm -hmm. to begin with, but the case I have in mind was about a uh, majority opinion was written by Justice Robert Jackson, who'd been our prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials. And and he knew what fascism oh. looked like from that experience. And and mm -hmm. uh, West Virginia public schools were mandating that students stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance uh, in, in classrooms. And now many people think that that's, how can you object to that, right? Well, there are lots of reasons that you can object to it. Um, and I can tell you that my early, my early American ancestors would have been dead set against making any public declaration or oath of allegiance to a government, mm -hmm. let alone a flag. I mean, that was a, that's a very, that's a very 20th mm -hmm. century thing, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance and saluting mm -hmm. the flag. And I mean, to my ancestors, that was associated with a standing army and um, police occupation and access to your homes right. for search and seizure and all kinds of other things that the Constitution outlawed. So mm -hmm. they were, they were on the side of the, of, of making sure people couldn't interfere with your thinking and your expression. And Justice Jackson said, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact words. Well, some of the exact words that no official of the government, petty or major, has any right to define patriotism in the speech or action of another person. That's not government's role. And in fact, they're prohibited from doing that um, by the Constitution. Mm. Fast forward to the 21st century. I, I thought this was amazing. Uh, for a long time, uh, trademark law in the United States said that you could not trademark uh, a disparaging term um, or an obscene term. One case I remember uh, particularly that I looked into had to do with a phone sex operation. And the guy who owned it realized that Jackoff had the right number of letters to fit into a phone number. And so he wanted to trademark 1-800-JACK-OFF and these things so that he could get the uh -huh. exclusive right to that word in relation to the phone sex business. And, and the trademark trial and appeal board said, no, you can't do that because that's, you know, that's an obscene 
term and that you can't trademark those types of terms. Oh. Similarly, you couldn't do disparaging terms. So when a band called The Slants, which was led by a guy named Simon Tam, um, they're a West Coast uh, uh, rock band, and they're all Asian Americans, and they called themselves The Slants to recover oh. for themselves, reappropriate slant as a slur yeah. against Asian people. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to trademark uh, uh, slant for their band, the slants, and the trademark trial and appeal board said, no, you can't do that because that's a derogatory term. And they appealed <laughs> it and it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, and I must say this is consistent with a certain strain of conservatism on the court, which is right minded, I think. They said um, slurs, though they obviously hurt people when you use them, they're nonetheless expressive speech. And they cannot be uh -huh. controlled by the government. If somebody wants to trademark it, they can uh -huh. trademark it because it isn't the government's business to say this is an objectionable word. You let the marketplace of ideas work that out and people's practices, right? And then when that when that ruling came right. down, I looked at it, I smiled and I said, well, what about the profanity? Right. And about a year later, they decided a case that had to do with profanity and trademarks and indeed consistently decided that profanity right. could be trademarked too. Now, an interesting fact. Uh -huh. I'm not trying to start anything here. <laughs> oh, let's. But there has been no, no flood of slur and profanity trademark applications. And there's no large number of them that have been trademarked in the end. But the principle is an important one. Yes. And what it says is that uh, certainly government's not in a position to censor people's speech, even when someone else might find it objectionable or harmful, right? So when it comes to scholarship on sex uh, and the Kinsey Institute here at uh, Indiana University, it's not really for the government to tell people what they can say. Now, to be fair, the legislature didn't say that people couldn't look at it and study it. They just said that no state money was going to be spent on the maintenance of that collection, which may not be uh, an issue for speech. I see. But very quickly into the uh, Hamas-Israel uh, conflict of the past couple of months, the university got notice from one of Indiana's representatives that we needed to uh, investigate uh, anti-Semitism uh, on campus and make sure that people here were protected from it. Here we go. Here we go. That, that's right. And, and, and Justice Jackson, I think, would say, if your neighbor comes and tells you that he thinks you need to stop being anti-Semitic or, 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 you know, using a slur or whatever, and I'm not obviously in favor of anti-anything, especially not anti-Semitism, but this is, this is the question of whether there's an open forum for the discussion of ideas and how far we protect ourselves from what we think is harmful language or harmful to somebody language. To someone else sometimes, right. That's right. And there are legit there are legitimate concerns uh, in all of that. And yet it isn't an officer of the government's job um, to tell people how to talk. Mm -hmm. That seems to me a constitutional mm -hmm. violation. Now, I will say what all, one should always say at this juncture. I am not a lawyer and I'm not practicing law. I'm just a concerned citizen who's interested in the question of censorship, who reads up about these things. And that's my, this is my impression given, given what I've read. And if the court decides something else for a jurisprudential reason, well, I'll just have to accept that because they are after all lawyers and, and justices and, and I'm not. 
Um, but it does give you a sense of the conflict that's going on right now. Absolutely. On the one hand, we want to keep people from saying harmful things in these forums. But then on the other hand, you know, you could have a billboard with profanity on it if it were trademarked, right? Or a slur on it if it were trademarked. What are you going to do when the slants come to play your local arena, right? And the slants with a little circle mm -hmm. with an R uh, in it for registered trademark is on the billboard mm -hmm. announcing mm -hmm. that's where anybody can see it right i mean that's you can't regulate that uh as a matter of speech anymore anyway you'd have to do yeah. something sneaky like go after the billboards and you know and see if there was a way that you could get billboards zoned right. out of areas where you were afraid kids might see or um, um asian american people who would be offended would see it you know so again I'm not saying that this is the right speech or this is the wrong speech. I really don't dare to do that. But I am very aware that it's roiling right mm -hmm. now as an issue, right? That then people are taking probably within their own view of things, contradictory positions. They haven't been forced to reconcile them uh, mm -hmm. into one viewpoint about the issue uh, yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is complicated, To you know, to be fair. It is complicated. But I do think that these things you know, this idea of courage being contagious is important because it might not be, you know, the government who steps in, but maybe the billboard, the people who sell that billboard space right. say, I don't want any yep. trouble, you know, yep. yeah, put an asterisk in there or, you know, because yep. it sort of all feeds on itself. And that that's a concern when you have a something that's as legally technical as the First Amendment but we have this sort of overall ethos that seems to be growing that a lot of speech is bad. So maybe talk a little bit about hate speech. Well, it's this is uh, so thorny, I don't even know if I can say anything sensible about it. I mean, I don't like hate speech, <laughs> and I Show, don't like to right? hear it. And I, if my children say something hateful, I correct them about it. And we talk about kindness as the fundamental uh, human aim, right? The thing that we should all be striving to be. So I can't, I can't but insist, though, that the United States, if, if it comes to government control over hate speech, really can't do that because because of the first amendment of the constitution we don't we don't acknowledge in an official way the category hate speech and i have been interested in the thing about the presidents of the universities you know that's mm -hmm. so so recent people's comments about that well what are you doing to protect people from hate speech at your university and it's a perfectly good question mm -hmm. and it's also okay to ask the presidents of harvard and penn which has a sort of equivocal position in MIT because they're basically private institutions. So they can do what they want to, but but a public university like Indiana uh -huh. University can't tell people not to say things the yeah. constitution allows them to say that protects we're a state, we're a state organ, right? Mm -hmm. And and the space at a public university is different from that in a private space. Mm -hmm. So telling people that they can't express themselves, That's a good point. we really cannot do that. Now, I think that one of the things that was interesting in the coverage mm -hmm. of the of the three presidents and responses to their testimony uh, was that some people pointed out that that was a type of double standard because universities were trying to protect people from hate speech in a variety of ways. And mm -hmm. and so uh, why mm -hmm. wouldn't they stand up against hate speech in, in this case? And I think that that's a reasonable question. At least be consistent. From a, a legal 
uh, point of view might be that you can't protect anybody from microaggressions in classrooms and you can't protect them from slurs and you can't protect them from hearing profanity coming out of the mouths of people, which I do on the university campus. It doesn't bother me, but I can well imagine parents of a 17-year-old of limited experience coming on a visit to the campus, uh, thinking about, you know, enrolling the child here and then hearing people swear in a fairly free way and thinking maybe maybe this isn't the school for my kid. And of course, we have the freedom to make those decisions. So, but it does mean that that um, mm-hmm. the language might make it less a less mm-hmm. inviting place to some people. It's very different in Europe where, where they're not hampered by these constitutional provisions and where there, there are laws directly against hate speech. And that type of censorship is a lot, not only allowed, but, but really preferred uh, by, by the people who live in those places. Now, not all the people, and they all have uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, right-wing movements that say terrible things about, about people uh, and are sometimes in trouble. Uh, with the hate speech laws in their countries because right. of, of what they do and say. But um, but that's a specifically, I would say un-American, but not American thing, right, to go around policing people's hate speech because we don't even really accept that there's a mm-hmm. hate speech thing, you know, at, at a legal level. We do at, a, at an interpersonal level, but not at a legal or political level. Yeah, exactly. And I always think about my dad when we would, and topics like this would come right. up and he would say, the question is, who decides? Who decides yeah. what hate speech is? What What's your definition? What does it look like? Is this hate speech? Is that hate speech? And once you get into the weeds, you can see it. It's just enormously complicated. It, it, it is enormously complicated, though I will say that that uh, um, having a slogan about genocide of Jewish people or Israeli citizens does strike me as hate speech. Even though we don't have that category, maybe officially, constitutionally, I think you can recognize it. And I think you can recognize that it's wrong. I think most people do. Probably most people by far do. But it's a question about you know how much you can restrict people's action in this way. Yeah. And on top of that, then who is responsible for reacting to that? Right. Is it is it the police? Right. Is it, I'm going to tell your mom that you said that? That might be the most effective. <laughs> and it might be the it might be the only legal thing that you could do, right? Because having the police go after people would be would be the state coming after you for things that you were yeah, right. saying to express yourself, however um, noxious uh, what you have to express may be. But, you know, this gets into issues of forced speech, too, which has been an issue exactly. before the courts. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I don't, you know, I believe in, in um, the accommodations laws and, and that, you know, people should have access to a business's services regardless of who they are and what uh-huh. they represent, right? So that's a principle I have in the back of my mind. But then, you know, the courts are deciding in some cases that telling somebody to make a cake that says a certain thing mm-hmm. um, forces them to say something um, mm-hmm. that they feel they shouldn't have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the flip side of being told you th- that you can't say what you want to say, right? right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we do, you're right, and I think it's a great topic to be talking about. We have not worked through all of this yet. Oh, we have yes. not, we have a lot <laughs> to think about and work through so that we have fair, um, sensible provisions for the use of speech within whatever constitutional structure uh, we want. But, you know, 
It's kind of like the Electoral College, of which I'm not a real big fan, mm. but it's in the Constitution and you're going to have to live with it uh, because there are too many small states with small populations who have an outsized influence in the Senate or the um, Electoral College. They're never going to vote for a constitutional amendment that limits their power, uh, right. you know, from a minority position. And to be fair, if you read the Federalist Papers, it's absolutely true that uh, James Madison and, and, and Alexander Hamilton wanted minorities protected by that outsized influence. It was right? not, yeah, it was deliberate. It was yeah, like, it was okay. deliberate. It was just because you've got more people in New York doesn't mean that you can tell everybody else what to do, right? Rhode Island, uh, they have people there. They they get two senators just as well as you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, we're kind of stuck with that. And I, and I feel that, you know, the big issue for all of the censorship questions is really finally a constitutional one. And as your father would say, who gets to tell? It's not the government for sure. So who else might get to tell? Yeah. So which brings me to my last question. It's kind of a humdinger. So, you know, the state of Indiana is dangling money, right? Or the withdrawal of money saying, you, you know, you can't work on sex. That's inappropriate. We don't want taxpayer money spent on right. studies. We're not paying for sex. that. That's yeah. right. But it's just a little bit of a similar situation when you have big donors then saying, okay, you have to walk back what you said, you university president, or we're not going to make this donation. So I wondered yeah. if you had any thoughts about that, about sort of the the influence of donors or, or funders in these conversations? Well, they have rights. And if they don't want to give money to an institution because they don't like what the institution represents, uh, they can certainly withhold the money. I think that I feel bad for the presidents in one way. It's an awful and tense situation to testify in front of Congress in the way that they were compelled to do, and mm -hmm. uh, clearly with some fairly angry representatives um, asking questions of them. And I'm not I'm not saying the questions weren't weren't good ones. They they didn't make the best answers they could have made. And the first thing out of their mouths probably should have been, "We're absolutely against the genocide of anybody, yeah. and you know certainly against Jewish people as well as anybody else." So no, we don't support that sort of speech. We don't. But and then you could say something like, a lot of times, you know, decisions like this are context dependent, right? Which is a phrase that a couple of them used. Tried, and that is yeah. and that is really true, though. It's true, but that's not what they wanted to hear. Because where do you draw the line, right? And when are you really clearly over the line and when are you not? So it's not that the presidents were wrong. No. It's just that they didn't reassure the donors that they had the donors' interests in mind. And, right. And, and I think that that's a type of rhetorical, political issue, a mistake that they made. And, and the best thing that they can do is to apologize for it personally mm -hmm. or institutionally. I mean, the president at Penn can't, can't do anything about it institutionally anymore because she isn't at no, the she, institution she's anymore. She's out. Yeah. Um, but the institution can say she's out because we're not going to accept, you know, that sort of answer in the place we're building here not only needs your money but deserves your money because we're not going to violate these basic feelings principles commitments or whatever it is it's that still you our values that's yeah. right that's still absolutely our valued and mm -hmm. so um you know i think that in my experience which is actually reasonably extensive you know donors are great people 
Yeah. I mean, some of them really do want to set up an art museum or or whatever so that they can sort of whitewash what they're doing uh, uh, with opioids or whatever it is. You know, I mean, <laughs> money laundering. Yeah, it is a type of yeah, exactly. And 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 to make themselves look better in the we know that there are people who do that, but but the people I meet with are do, trying to do a, a good concrete thing and uh, incredibly for, generous. Right? Yes, for the institution generous, sometimes yeah. out of loyalty, but you know all of that is finally about the people who benefit from mm -hmm. it. I mean, like, you know, people who donate fellow money to university uh, departments or prize money for undergraduates or whatever I mean mm -hmm. think of what that means to the to the students it means an awful lot and it is it, it is a generous thing to do so I think that you deserve a sort of reassurance that your aims and the institution's aims are well aligned yes um but all the donors I know understand what an apology is mm. and understand what a correction is and I think that you know if somebody comes back and says, I didn't put that the best way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't. I don't think it's wrong for the donors to exercise a little bit of authority mm -hmm. uh, over that. Uh, it's different from just the transactions we have in speech because then it's you and me, you know, and uh, or whoever it is, and we have to work out what's cooperative mm -hmm. uh, between us. But if you're giving something of value, uh, there is a demonstration of cooperation that has to come from. The receiver of your of your benefit, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that's fair. So I don't think it's right. I understand the point of your question. I don't think it's right for donors constantly to be legislating what goes on at a university. And if donors wanted to see speech rights um, revoked at universities in order to force their own ideological view, for instance, mm -hmm. onto the university, that would be wrong. Um, but to say, well, you know, as a Jewish person who believes in the state of Israel and whose parents were Zionists, you know, and the mm -hmm. parents made some of the money that I'm about ready to give you right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that I need to see from you that you really understand how hurtful this is to me and how threatening mm -hmm. it is to people on your campus. You have to prove that before you get the goods. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It reminds me, it seems like that's kind of a problem with with just the world that we're living in now where our communication is often so stilted or, you know, just sitting down and having a conversation person to person might have just resolved all of this, right? You know, it, it might have. And, and, and the fact is, you know, speaking of self-censorship, I don't think I do a lot of it, but I do tread more carefully mm -hmm. in the classroom mm -hmm. than I used to. Sure. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? No, it's partly because I don't want to offend anyone, mm -hmm. and, and I'm committed to that. But then I've had arguments break out over you know, uh, race in America on the basis of reading short stories by black authors, right, where white students in the classroom started to really attack in a stereotyped way. Um, a lot of what was in the stories and a lot of what the black students in the class were saying. Oh, interesting. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to manage, right? Oh. Because the white students have rights too. Mm -hmm. We're having an open discussion. We want them to say what helps learning yeah. in the class, right? And, and a little bit of misunderstanding on their parts or provocation that can lead to good results. It's true. It's revealing, right? That's right. But it can also be hurtful or damaging. Yeah. And how you balance those two things. I remember a particular day where I just, you know, I walked out of the classroom thinking, well, that was unexpected. And, mm. you know, I did not handle that very well. You uh -huh. know, I mean, I didn't know 
I didn't know how to balance those things to make sure that the, how do you calculate the least amount of harm and the most amount of rights, you know, right. in a case like that. And so that gets back to your point that we could solve it if we just sat down and had a frank discussion about yeah. it one-on-one. -on -one. But the moment you get beyond one-on-one, -on -one, when you're in any larger group at all, yeah. then then the dynamics of the group begin to enter the picture and, and make communication more difficult, which is an irony because we have discussion-based courses at the university to have conversations because that will help us solve the world's problems or whatever. But then those comp those conversations are sometimes more complicated than we really know how to handle mm -hmm. well as students or sometimes even as instructors in those classes. But back to the bigger question, the last person who has anything to tell me about managing a situation like that in a classroom is a member of the United States Congress. Right. Yeah. It's not their business. It's not their expertise. They don't have skin in the game. I do. Yeah. That's why we have academic freedom. And that's right. why we have speech rights on campus, right? Yeah. And then we have to figure out how to make that work mm -hmm. most fairly and effectively uh, mm -hmm. for our purposes. Um, and uh, there are instances where context dependent is it is actually the issue. Mm -hmm. um, and probably not in this particular instance, you know, of, of anti-Semitism on those campuses. So it's a tricky moment. I don't know if we're at a threshold or a crossroads or whatever, but I will say it's tricky right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, all the things that I'm working on, all the study that I do, I mean, we need ways to express ourselves precisely, thoughtfully, um, joyfully, miserably, uh, performatively. Mm -hmm. We need all we need we need language that helps us express ourselves in all those ways and more, right? From my perspective, the idea of somebody really kind of pulling the word out of your mouth, right? So that you can't say it. Mm -hmm. Hoping that they're kind of pulling the word out of people's brains by doing that, or out of cultural memory. You know, that's so destructive, it seems to me. You know, it's not an accident that use of profanity is correlated with intelligence now <laughs> you can argue against intelligence uh as as uh you know a metrical thing uh, and we probably mm. should be very skeptical about that arguably if you have 160 <laughs> iq and are a kind of a you know low level genius or whatever you're more likely to swear than you are if you have a lower iq <laughs> that's so awesome whatever that says about intelligence and the reason is obvious because in the more intelligent you are, the more you're likely to challenge norms yeah, uh -huh. and 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 uh, 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 restrictions. Mm -hmm. Restrictions. To your you might be more creative. And, and you're and you're capable of being creative. <laughs> that is such a, a great message for our listeners. <laughs> all right, but, but I mean that's so. So I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to take all of the bad words out of the smart people's minds, and then suddenly we're going to end up with. I mean, I don't know that that leads to any good result at all. Yeah. Or you know, I'm waiting to see if there's ever a majority of Americans who think that all swearing should be prohibited. Yeah. Uh, or that, you know, it's yeah, not, it won't it's, be it's, the America we know today. That's for sure. Right. It's a minority. It's Well, it's a minority against minority argument that kind of has the majority pinned down mm. in my view. And it's a question in the end of what of what we want to do and how we want to codify that, codify the the use of bad language in our law, mm -hmm. you know. 
uh, because there will never be people will be codifying the language people will have little notebooks in their drawers at home or files in their computers with all the bad words they've heard <laughs> right uh you're not going to stop people from being interested in it or right. writing it down yeah. or sharing it with interested people sure. so it really is a question of how people who object to it decide to act out that objection and what what latitude they have to do that politically and legally uh, within a community. I have that in mind. Actually, we can get back to the Kripke collection before we go. Madeline had collected a couple of copies of a book called uh, The Classical Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. The first edition was published in 1785, and it's by a fellow named Francis Gross, who was a captain in the British Army. He was a mustering captain. He spent his time in, in taverns and brothels um, so that he could um, uh, forcibly uh, enlist uh, the men who came to enjoy the services of those places. Mm -hmm. And so he knew bad language from the inside. Yeah. He'd heard a lot of it. And he produced this dictionary. And it wasn't the only thing he did. He did other types of dictionaries and other types of books. He was he was a very intelligent and learned man. But this was a side, sort of sideline that he developed because of his access to the language. And it looks like I'm thinking now that the Lilly Library may end up owning all of Francis Gross's annotated copies oh, neat. of his dictionary because he annotated a copy of the first edition in making the second edition oh, right. and the second edition in making the third oh, edition. Wow. And the third edition was annotated. And I don't know if it was used by the person who edited the fourth edition of it anyway, but Gross's notes are there. Mm. And that's an example of what we're talking about. I mean, maybe you could make a law that would say, Francis Gross, you may not publish the classical dictionary of the, of the vulgar tongue. But nothing was going to keep him from scribbling this stuff down. Well, yeah. I right? mean, God help us if yeah. we get to that point, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. That would be that would be a dystopian tale worthy of Margaret Atwood yeah. or somebody right. like that, right, yeah. to tell the story of. And it's been told before from Ray Bradbury and yep. Fahrenheit for, you know, 451 and everything. I mean, it's, we've been aware of the potential problem for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, but this does seem like a moment. It does. But yeah. I I, yeah. I do think going, you know, that's one of the reasons that history, I think, is interesting. And you're explaining about these issues over time. I think it's really helpful to people because we do get a broader perspective of the ebbs and flows and the cycles, you know, that, oh, here we go again, kind of. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> Most of us don't live long enough right. to to say, here we go again on the basis of our own experience. Mm -hmm. And you're right. That's one of the reasons that history is so important. And one of the reasons now, many of my historian friends don't want to be called humanists. They want to be social scientists. And so, all right, if that's what they want to be, that's OK. That's right. And I've got nothing against the social sciences. However, you know, when the humanities come under attack and are dismissed as somehow irrelevant or, you know, a luxury that we can't afford, what we really are, are doing partly is saying uh, we just won't be able to see, we don't want to see the story that the past tells us about the present. Right. Yeah, that's, and, and, that's and, really and dangerous. That's a very dangerous thing really to dangerous. do. I yeah. think it is important to be able to say, as you're suggesting, uh, we've been through this before. Here were the terms on which we went through it. Here's the solution we came up with then. Mm -hmm. Here's our problem now. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we want to do about that? Without the benefit of history, uh, I think we're really at a loss. And frankly, many of us get our history and our ethics, though the historians and the philosophers don't like this, from literature. Oh, yes. 
you know, and not and literature broadly construed, including uh, the 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 uh, video culture of our day, television, mm -hmm. movies, everything, and these you know colors. offbeat things that that you're talking about too, right? That's yeah, that's and all us. those things too. That's yeah. right. We're storytellers. We like to tell stories. We like things that invite us to tell a story. Uh, History is a big story. Novels are big stories. You know, these are all stories we need to engage with. Uh, to understand our own situation, and, and uh, I would hate to see us lose. I tell you what, I, I hate most about it, Jennifer, because I think that the that the um, the biggest push against the humanities libraries that tends to occur um, at state universities and public schools. Yeah, the people who are not going to lose access to the knowledge or opportunities to learn about things. Um, that maybe the majority doesn't approve or some they're, they're people at elite institutions. Yeah. The people who are going to be deprived of the knowledge and access to it are people who pay in-state tuition mm -hmm. as though their cultural lives and their intellectual lives somehow don't matter as much as those of the people who go to Ivy League schools or Ivy-like schools. And I absolutely reject that. It actually turns my stomach uh, to think that that might be that that sort of anti-democratic move is the one we're making. And I know that there's a parent out there uh, who will say, well, um, if what you mean by that is my child reading about uh, uh, lesbian love in a book in the school or reading bad words in Shakespeare, we can do without that, right? But I don't think that that's, again, I don't think that's a majority view uh, in America. Well, there's something really, yeah, really repellent about the idea of freedoms for me, but not freedoms for you. Right, right, which is where we'll end up because I think people of privilege are not going to give up their access to knowledge right. because knowledge is self-knowledge and cultural knowledge but it's also power. power so you know people with power aren't going to give up knowledge uh, but they can allow ordinary people to have knowledge withheld from them mm -hmm. right because it's not they're not the ones who are being hurt by that yeah. right yeah uh, and, and i hope we're not i hope we're not going down that road that's why we talk about it, right? That's right. And as an epilogue to that, uh, I say to you and to your uh, to your uh, listeners and everybody who wants to hear it, anytime you want to talk about bad language, just give me a call, <laughs> write, write me a letter uh, or whatever it is, because one eight hundred something something something. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hide from these from these topics. I'll tell your listeners too. Um, a great place to go for a kind of fun. Uh, and casual view of strong language is the blog called Strong Language, oh. um, for which many really wonderful linguists who write well write. Oh, okay. Right? And, and um, I hate to say it, but there are some linguists who don't write very clearly. Mm. It's just, you know, they're academics and they just don't. But these are the ones. Oh, I have in mind, for instance, Ben Zimmer, who you or some of your listeners may know. I mean, Ben writes about language for the Wall Street Journal. Uh -huh. He's got a PhD in linguistics from the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, he could be teaching in some university somewhere, but he's not. He writes about language all of the time in public spaces. And when you go to strong language, if you're interested in profanity and that type of uh, stuff, you're reading really well-written pieces by him and other people who contribute regularly to it. Um, that have a sense of humor mm -hmm. uh, and uh, racy examples that will delight you, uh, but who, but 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 you know who are also speaking from a really informed uh, position, mm -hmm. and uh, so you get the real story, but it's a fun story over there. Oh, that sounds lovely! Yeah, thank yeah. you for the yeah. recommendation. Yeah. I recommend it. 
All right, Michael, it was so great to talk to you. I enjoy it so much. And I hope that you will come back on the show when your book is available to tell us more about I it. I hope that book will be, be available. And, I, and when it is, I'll let you know. And then and I will be happy to come back and talk about, about that and more. Great. Sounds great. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Our goal in 2024 is to expand our audience because we get such great guests. So we'd love your help in spreading the word by sharing, subscribing, liking, thumbs upping, rating, and commenting. Got all that? Really, thanks for any support. Book Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guy, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. Also, a shout out to Podomatic, our podcast hosting platform. You podcasters out there might want to check them out. They've been good to us. And finally, thanks to Quincas Morera for the theme music. Music